are in week eight, and we'll have week nine to close the book of Ephesians next week. But I personally have loved it, been very challenged and growing through this. I hope the same is true of you. This week, we will be continuing on from what Pastor Gino taught last week in Ephesians chapter five. We're going to pick right up there and continue moving on. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and grab that. If you don't have a Bible, we have some shelves in the back with Bibles on them. If you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those and keep it. That would be um, a joy for us to give that to you. Also, of course, you can pull up the Bible on your phone, on the YouVersion Bible app or anything like that. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. And today, I'm going to recap one small, I'm going to reread, so to speak, uh, one small passage that Gino closed on last week because this passage really sets up and catapults us into everything we're going to read and going to teach today. So uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil and we can all kind of look around and see that and go amen, right? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is what we were doing earlier, saying, sin was great, but Jesus is greater. Our shame was great, but Jesus is greater. I messed up the words there, but who cares? We're encouraging one another with those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, not just your lips, but with your heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we go. Get your highlighter, your underliner out. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As we're about to keep on reading throughout Ephesians chapter 5 and the opening parts of chapter 6 today, this is a literary unit where the Apostle Paul is talking about godly submission. And that's a term that a lot of us buckle and ruffle against when we are told submit or obey. There is this defiance often that kind of comes up in, in us where we're like, I, I'm my own person. I'm grown. You don't tell me what to do. But the truth is, I'm going to piggyback on a point that Pastor Gino made last week because it was just that good, that the life of a Christian is a life of submission. The life of a Christian is a life of submission. For every single one of us, there are many different people, many different roles, many different authorities in our life that God ordained for us all to be in submission to. And what we'll see as we continue reading here, that there is one chief and supreme authority. What's the Sunday school answer for who that is? Jesus is the chief and supreme authority above all. And every Christian, every believer is to be submitted ultimately to this supreme authority that is Jesus Christ. But that same authority of Jesus Christ has also cascaded down into different levels and different roles of authority that we all are to be submitted to in various capacities and various responsibilities 
within our lives. And so we see here, not only does Paul go into talking about submission by just saying, well, let's talk about submission and let's do it. Before he gets into talking about submission, he says, submitting to one another, how? Out of reverence for Christ. That is the framework that we approach the conversation of submission with, is that we're not doing this reluctantly or out of obligation or compulsion with, with it not in our heart, but we do it out of reverence for Jesus Christ. And really, I think it's wonderful and beautiful that to reverence Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate master who we are submitted to, that this same master, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, also modeled submission for us. And that helps us as we accept the biblical call to submission. If you've got your Bibles really quick, why don't you flip back over or flip forward to the book of Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, the next book. You remember we just went through Philippians a few months ago. And in chapter 2, we see this account of Jesus doing the very thing that we are commanded to do, meaning submit. So we're going to pick up in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi says this, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, this thought process, this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, saying, let this thought process that Jesus had, let that be in you. And here he goes, who though he was in the form of God, meaning Jesus is God, fully God, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. And that's an interesting phrase there. We want to underline equality with God, a thing to be grasped, meaning he didn't think this was a thing to be clinged onto and not let go of. He didn't think his equality with the Father, we know that the Trinity is true, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all are equal, three and one, one God, three persons, all equal, but we see roles in which Jesus is submitted to the Father. And so we can see here, Jesus sharing equality with the Father, but submitting to the role of the Father, he didn't count that a thing to be grasped, going, no, I'm not going to let go of that and put on humanity and go down there. In fact, we see the contrary. In verse 7, it says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming what? obedient, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, we see the beauty of submission when we see, when we see it in Christ. When we recognize the submission that we as believers are called into is nothing that wasn't first shown in Christ. When we are called to submit to our godly authorities, God is not asking something of us that he did not already fulfill himself in Jesus Christ. 
Because see what happens a lot of times in this conversation about submission, and as we're about to keep on reading in chapter five, we're gonna see the first scenario, the first context we see is in the, in the home with a husband and a wife where it's gonna say, wives submit to your husband. What we have challenge us in our culture today is people say, well, wait a minute, that's not equality. And Jesus in Philippians chapter two says, did not count equality that he had something to be grasped. And so we can see submission does not equal less than. Submission does not mean not equality. Rather, that God has ordered that he has established in Genesis when he created this world, there is order in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus obeyed the Father, even though the Godhead three in one, fully God equal together, Jesus by role and function chose to submit to the Father's will. Let's rewind to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus had his strongest and final test right before he would be arrested and beaten and whipped 39 times with his flesh being torn from his body his bones and flesh being exposed, his innocent blood being shed before he would take nails in his hands, before he would take a crown of thorns piercing his skull, before he would be beaten and whipped, before he would bear the cross, climbing up Golgotha, all of those things, knowing he was about to go through all of that in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Father, saying, Father, if there is any other way we can do this, Please, let's do it. If there's any other way, he's saying, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to do what I know I'm about to do. And he said, if there's any other way, I don't want to drink the cup of your wrath on sin of mankind. I don't want to drink this wrath on the cross. If there's any other way we can do this, please, can we do it? And he's crying and he's sweating blood. He is vexed deeply about what he's about to go through for you and for me. And then he says, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And Philippians 2 echoes for us that he was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. This is Jesus who was then elevated to have the name that is high above every name, that at the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord forever. This master eternal, this Jesus Christ who was key in the creation of our world and our universe that Hebrews tells us is currently right now upholding all things by the word of his power. This big, huge, powerful God beyond what our minds can understand said, I will submit to the Father's will to the point of death and I'm not gonna see this equality that I have with God as something that I need to fight for, but rather I'm gonna humble myself and obey. So we see that submission is not this domineering, burdensome concept. We look willingly at the obedience, the submission of Christ and copy him out of joy. 
We get to look at our master and go, that's what I want to be like. We get to look at Jesus, right, as Christians, those who are Christ-like, and go, I want to be like Christ, which means there is authority in our lives and in this world, which God has given to all of us. And to be like Christ is to submit willingly in our hearts with joy. We read in Hebrews that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy set before him. And so can we look at this beautiful model, this beautiful display and say, yes, amen, Father, I want to do the same. Father, help me submit to what you have set in place in my life. Help me ultimately be submitted to Jesus Christ. Help me ultimately be submitted to you, God, and to your word and to your spirit leading me. That is the ultimate authority. And so we can see through Jesus in Philippians 2 that submission does not equal less than. And in and, and the same way, are children any less than us in anything other than age and maybe mental development and maturity? They're not less in value. They're not less in worth. They're not less in dignity. Yet later in this chapter, we'll see the call for children to submit to their parents. So the case that that submission is a challenge to equality is a lie. But that it's God set things in order and we are called to submit to him. I know this isn't a popular idea in 2021. I know this isn't a popular idea in America, but we're gonna give an account to God. And so I just don't care what, what the world says. I just don't. And hopefully we all don't because we're all gonna stand before God. So, we are to be in submission to one another. Because the truth is that all of us, all of us will be in submission to at the very least someone else, realistically to several others, and probably many others. All of us, all of us will be in submission or have authority above us by at least someone else Realistically, several others and probably many others. And you might think, well, but, but does everybody, because let's think, Pastor Stephen, about like, consider Jeff Bezos, richest man in the world, founder of Amazon. Is he really in submission to other people? Because couldn't he like buy his way out of anything and all that? Listen, he is submitted to, has to be submitted to his employees in a sense. If he's not mindful of their needs, mindful of what they bring to the table, they don't help his cause. He has to be submitted to the governing authorities. If he violates tax code, Amazon had to adjust the way they manage taxes. Why? Because they are submitted to authority, whether they like it or not. He's submitted to the systems of enterprise that are in place. He's submitted to the will of customers. And so there is submission for every person at every level. It's just in some cases, it looks different. But every single person has submission to authority by God's design. Whether we like it or not, we are called to submit to the government. Oh boy, yeehaw. Now here's the caveat. In all relationships, whether this is government, whether this is in the home, whether this is in the workplace, whether this is with friends or whatever, the supreme authority in our lives being Jesus Christ, 
means that there might be times where our obedience and submission to him causes us to disobey those who are above us yet still under him. And so where that comes into play is if your husband, your boss, your your government, your whomever might be in authority over you in some role, in some capacity, if they ask you to sin, if they ask you to do something that dishonors God, if they ask you to do something contrary to God's word and God's way, then that's where we submit to the Lord and we say, I will not obey. Even if parents ask their children to do something sinful, that child has a responsibility to the Lord to obey God. Now, hopefully our children are growing up in godly homes. Hopefully our children are growing up with parents that would model godliness and not ask them to do something sinful. And I recognize there are plenty of homes that are not, per well, actually no home is perfect. My home's not perfect. My marriage isn't perfect. My parenting isn't perfect. And I understand that there are wounds and I understand that there has been abuse and I understand that there are difficult dynamics in the nuance of all of these relationships. And so what, what we will see as this unfolds is ultimately every single one of us is subject to the Lord Jesus Christ and different levels of relationships and authorities in our lives. But ultimately, our responsibility to the Lord helps us when someone um, wrongfully asks us to sin or disobey the Lord. We are called to submit to the Lord. Amen? See, the beauty of the expectation of the Christian obedience is that nothing was asked of us that was not asked of Christ himself. So as we continue on in these next verses, let's remember, I'm not being asked to do anything that Jesus did not himself already do. Amen? Ephesians chapter 5, flip back over there, picking up in verse 22. The Apostle Paul says this, if I can get there. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Amen, we're done, let's go. <laughs> Brother, you better stop that. All eyes on Rob today, okay. You're going to pay for that one. This is where we start. Our culture and society starts to train us to be opposed to the will of of God, the way of God. Now here's what happens. Men can read this and woefully applaud like Rob just did. Thankfully, I'm pretty sure he was joking and if he wasn't, Heather, I'm glad to talk to him after service, but <laughs> sinful men can take scripture and go, woohoo, all right, wife, you see that? Submit, you better do what I said. And just take one verse out of its context and sinfully manipulate, control, subject, um, uh, and, and dominate a daughter of God. And that is sinful and wicked and abominable. That is not what is intended here because it doesn't stop. Let's keep reading and see if the guys still want to applaud. Wives, submit to your own... I'm sorry, Rob. I'm just going to keep messing with you. You pointed it at yourself, brother. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Men, before you start going, woohoo, this sounds nice, sign me up, let's keep reading. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we might hear, husbands, love your wives. We're like, yeah, sure, I love you, sweetie. Make me a sandwich. That's not what's in play here. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a tall order. That's one that if our sinful heart starts going, oh, yippee, I get to, I get to lead and I get to say what I want and have my way, it's followed with, actually, you are called to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself. You're called to die to yourself for your wife. I have to repent of this often. This is not some empowering of, of manipulation and control and subjugation. This is a call for husbands to die, to set themselves aside for the good of their wives, for the nurturing and caring for their wives. So rather than going, yippee, we ought to be going, oh, snap. Because we will give an account to the Lord for this. Men, we will give an account to the Lord for this. How do we love our wives? Now, I don't say this today to any man who's sitting here going, man, I have not done this. I'm not saying this to shame you and guilt you. If that has been you, repent. Ask the Lord to forgive you and ask your wife to forgive you. And then, because here's the deal. I don't know of a wife who would hear the question, hey, do you want your husband to, to spiritually lead the home? Do you want your husband to seek out your spiritual growth and maturity? Do you want your husband to seek out the spiritual growth and maturity of your children? Do you want your husband to set the example in godliness? Do you want your husband to model godly values in the home and set the standard of godliness in the home? I don't know of a godly woman who would hear those questions and go, eh, actually, not so much. I'd actually prefer that he not do that. No, a godly wife is way more often going to be going, not way more often, a godly wife is always going to be going, yes, that's exactly what I want from him. I want my husband leading spiritually in the home. I want my husband showing our children and me what it looks like to faithfully serve the Lord. I want him holding us all accountable to the word of God. I want my husband being a man of prayer. I want my husband being a man of the word of God. I want my husband to show sacrificial love and care. Yes, husband, please do that. I promise you from conversations I've had with people, there are far more women in church who have that as their heart going, I wish my husband would lead then there are those saying, yeah, I actually would rather him not because I feel like we're not equals at that point. I guarantee you there are far more women in church who are thinking, husband, please lead our family. Please step up and model godly manhood 
There are far more of those women in the church than there are those who are thinking, I wish my husband didn't try so hard to lead our family. I don't think that there are many women who are going, you know what? I wish that you would pray with our kids a little less. And what has happened is the sin of passivity that we saw in the Garden of Eden where Adam was with his wife knowing the command of God not to eat of the fruit. Scripture says he was there with his wife and didn't stop his wife from the sin that she was being tempted into. And this brings in another dynamic about our accountability. Because as we consider the Garden of Eden, where man and woman were put there together and they both knew the command of God not to touch or eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they both knew it. It's clear in the way that Adam said, no, no, we were told by God not to do that. And then she goes on and believes the lie and the temptation and she sins. Who in that account was first to sin? And this is not some pointing fingers thing. But in that account, who sinned first? Eve did. And that she didn't obey the clear command of God. Adam also sinned in that he didn't intervene. And so let's think about this. As this story unfolds and God is walking in the garden. And they were hiding because they knew they were naked. And he's like, Adam, where are you? And he says, well, we're hiding because we knew we were naked. And God says to him, how do you know you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? Of course, God knew the answer. He was asking for, for their sake. Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat? Even though Adam was, or Eve was the one who touched and ate first, who was the one who gave account for the sin? Adam. The husband. The leader. Because he knew the word of God and he should have said, wait, 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 honey. Hang on, hold on. I know that serpent's making some interesting points, but remember what God told us. Remember what he said. And we need to trust God rather than this voice. And the, fall, the responsibility falls on the man today to nurture and care for his wife, for his family, that when we see straying and when we see wandering, to go, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Remember what God said. Remember what is written. This is the same way Jesus resisted temptation when it came to him. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And whoa, what would our houses look like? What would our homes, our families look like if men of God were in the home saying, it is written. If men of God to their wives and to their children were over and over in different situations, different accounts saying, it is written. The word of God says, I know what the world is telling us to do. I know how the world is pressuring us to live. But remember, honey, remember, kids, the Bible says this is the role and the responsibility of the husband, of the father. That doesn't mean the wife is not involved. In fact, my wife very often can come to me and say, hey, sweetie, this area, not looking so hot. She's way more gracious than that. But she is very good at being a, 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 a helper to me to help me see my own shortcomings. She has said to me before, hey, I don't think you're helping the girls when you talk to them in that tone. And my own sinfulness comes out there and I have to go, oh, and I have to, Repent, and she has to help me with that. And so this is some, not, the mom's not involved, the wife's not involved, 
Quite contrary, we are submitted to one another in love, as it just said in the end of chapter 5, or halfway through chapter 5, the, the verses that we read there, um, verse 21. We're submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ, but the same way that Jesus was called to submit to the Father, wives are called to submit to husbands, but if we keep on reading this passage I want you to pay attention to the weight if there was a balance put one way or the other. We've already read, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Let's keep on reading. In verse 26, it says that he might sanctify her, Jesus Christ sanctifying the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, that we, we're one with the Lord, essentially. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Recognizing there, when a man and a woman are married, they become one being, one flesh before the Lord. And so if a wife, or if a husband abuses authority, he is not loving himself, his own one flesh. He's fighting against himself. He's dishonoring God by, by dishonoring honoring a daughter of God and he's fighting himself by resisting the unity of that one flesh. So before we go off men getting all giddy and going, yeehaw, I get to lead, let's look at this picture that we are called to die for our wives, to lovingly serve. We, in our loving service to our wives, set the stage for their call to be joyfully submitted. And I can tell you from my own life, when I am loving my wife well, when I am sacrificing my own desires and my own comforts and my own wants, when I'm doing that for her well, she joyfully loves and supports and encourages me. There's not this reluctant rebellion like, I hate what the Bible says here. She's thankful. My wife is thankful when I'm leading our family. She's thankful when I'm leading our daughters. And so men, when we do this well, we cultivate, we do our part to set the stage for joyful submission because why is it that we as the church, the body of Christ, can joyfully submit to the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ? We can do so joyfully because we know how much he loves us, right? We see from the gospels the account of him laying his life down for us we see that account in Philippians 2 where it says that he submitted to the Father, not counting that equality to be a thing to be grasped, but he came down and humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant that he obeyed to the point of death. We can see those things and go, whoa, the infinite love of Jesus Christ for me. Yeah, I can submit to that. I can submit to the one who has good plans for me. I can submit to the one who was willing to die for me. I can submit to the one who took the cross for me, took my sin, took my shame, washed me clean with his blood. I can gladly submit to him. And so, husbands, 
If you have to use the Bible to say, see, you better listen, you got bigger issues. If you have to use this passage to say, see, the Bible said you better submit, you got bigger problems. Because we ought to be doing in our loving service to our wives, our sacrificial love for our wives, setting and cultivating, setting the stage, cultivating the ground for joyful submission. And I can say when I am failing in this, my wife will submit out of honor to the Lord, but also say, hey, bud, what's going on here? This don't look Christ-like to me. But when I am serving her well, when I am sacrificing for her, I don't have to impose any sort of you better. I don't need where the Bible says that your bodies belong to each other, so come on, honey. You don't need verses like that to tell your wife what to do when you're doing this part, when we're loving our wives. And as we read that whole passage, did you feel a little more emphasis on one of these dynamics than the other? There was a lot more quantity of verse and writing given to the husband loving their wife as Christ loved the church. Lots of amens this morning. Yeehaw. As we continue reading in chapter 6, we see another dynamic of the three dynamics in the home here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here, one more time, we see one more picture of submission to authority and that children are to obey their parents. And then uh, not only does it say obey, but it says honor your father and mother and the Lord that it may go well with you. And I just got to be honest, I think that our culture in America could take some notes from some other cultures about what it looks like to honor father and mother, after, especially in the senior years of life. I think our culture can take a lot of notes from some other cultures about what that means and what that looks like. But here we see the account of children, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because none of us are going, wait a minute, you mean children should listen? I don't know about that. None of us are really struggling with that concept, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. So there, there does deserve emphasis on, on, on this word here, honor your father and mother. If you did a word study, you'd find that it, it ultimately comes to the meaning of give due weight to. That doesn't always equate, uh, equate obey, especially because there's a point where the father or the, the husband leaves the father and mother and is joined to his wife. And even beyond that, even if you're not married, there can come a day when you're not married and live outside of the house and you're responsible to the Lord, not responsible to your parents anymore. But that does not mean you stop honoring. And so we are called to always, all days of our life, honor our fathers and our mothers. And just as the husband and the leader of the home or just as the husband is the leader of the home, but not the ultimate authority, Christ is the ultimate authority of the Christian. Parents are not the ultimate authority. They're the immediate authority, but not the ultimate authority of kids. Jesus Christ is. We are stewards of them, amen? 
recognizing God has given us kids to steward and raise in godliness. So again, if a parent asks a kid to do something sinful, that child has an accountability to the Lord to not sin. If a, if a child ha, is in faith in the Lord and lives in a home with unbelieving parents, say that there's a teenager who feels a call to ministry and those parents are like, no, you're, you're gonna go to college and you're gonna get a real job. You're not gonna do that stuff. Well, that, that, that child has a responsibility to the ultimate authority that is the Lord. So honoring our parents is important, but it doesn't always equal obedience. But most of the time, kids in the home, it equals obedience. Parents, we are to steward our children and we are to discipline, or our discipline should come from love, not from anger. Our discipline, notice that last verse there, verse four, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Listen, far too often, and I'm guilty, that we can be angry at our kids not obeying or angry at the attitudes that our kids have, and we can discipline in a moment of anger, and that's dangerous because that's where we say things and do things that we regret. And as precious as our children are, that's where if we are angry, where discipline is necessary, we need to say something along the lines of, go to your room or go sit on the couch or something like that. I need a minute and go cool down. Go shut that anger down so that you can put your heart back into a position of sobriety and back into a position of being emotionally stable and back into a position of love for the child that causes you to discipline them in a way that is loving and not harsh, not mean, not angry. Amen. Here we go into the final complicated, potentially controversial dynamic of what we're reading today. Talking about submission. In verse 5, Paul says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. He's talking about the term slave. Bond servants, obey your masters with fear and trembling, with sincere heart, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Highlight that, underline that if you want. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. That was to the person under authority. Here's the authorator. Verse nine, masters, do the same thing to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours, being Jesus, is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So does the Bible teach that slavery is okay and is good? Simple answer, no. The challenge that we face as modern Americans, modern Westerners, is that we have perceptions and understandings of words that are different than what would have happened or been perceived in the ancient historical culture that this letter was written to. So to us, when we hear slaves and slavery, we immediately rewind, of course, to our context in our history of the Civil War and of Jim Crow and all that kind of stuff. And we think about uh, all the chattel slavery that happened, which is egregious and evil and sinful and wicked. No bones about it. Evil, wicked, sinful. What's in view here that Paul is referring to 
in the Greco-Roman world and also in ancient Jewish culture was that people would be bond servants. That's why it was translated bond servants this way rather than just slave in other translations. And, and it was the equivalent of an economic transaction whereby someone who had debt to someone else that they could never repay oftentimes would of their own will and of their own volition, by their own choice, bind themselves to someone to work and to serve, to earn and pay off their debt. This is very different than chattel slavery. Not only was it very different as a transaction of economics and someone working and serving someone, but there are many other dynamics in which it was different. Because what we can see from Scripture in Exodus chapter 21 is that the act of kidnapping or taking someone against their will and selling them into slavery, Exodus 21 tells us, is explicitly condemned by God. Not okay. It is wicked, it is sinful, and never okay. And even especially in, in uh, Exodus, we see the account of the nation of Egypt or the nation of Israel subject to that kind of slavery to the nation of Egypt and God judges Egypt for it. And so, that is never okay, never acceptable. Every single human, man, woman, child is created in the image of God and his likeness with equal dignity and value before God. Amen? Every single human, equal value, equal worth, equal dignity as an image bearer of God. And so what we can see here is that this was very different. It was, not, it was also not perpetual, Whereas in chattel slavery, you became a slave and your children became slaves and you were always a slave unless you escaped or were killed. This, what we're talking about in scripture, is actually in the Levitical law of God, there was a limit put on it. Saying that if someone has served someone else this way for six years, at the sixth year, you are to let them go. You're to release them. Not only are you to release them of their debt, but you're also to send them on the way with help, with provisions. So this is very, very different from what comes to mind for us when we hear slavery. And so it was very, very different. Uh, what we think of as slavery is clearly condemned in Scripture. There were outs provided to these individuals um, and, and some other ways that it's very different. In chattel slavery, they did everything they could to suppress education and knowledge to slaves. And this day, they were educated. They were loved. There was a mutual love and support. But there were sinful people in these roles, which is why Paul had to write what he wrote. And he said, stop threatening them. They're the same way that there are sinful men who are ungodly uh, in, in God, ungodly ways abusing their husbands or, or their wives or their children. It's sinful. It's unacceptable before the Lord. It warrants repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. So no, scripture does not teach slavery. And we can see this also in the account that we do see the order of the home established in Genesis, but we do not see slavery instituted. So no, all of that to say, as we look at this passage that we just read, what is the modern day parallel? It is that of employer and employee. And so when we go into those relationships and those dynamics, we do it as unto the Lord, not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, where when the boss is here, we're doing really good work, we're working our tails off. Oh man, boss, yeah. 
love the job. Woo-hoo, they get out. All right, I'm going to kick back my feet and scroll on Facebook all day. That is not service unto the Lord. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And then again, to that in authority, masters do not uh, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he, is, he who is both their master and yours, Jesus, their master and your master, is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. We see that we are to love others because of what Christ has done for us, not because of how they treat us. We are to love others, whether in healthy relationships or not. And listen, if you are a wife or a child who's experiencing abuse at the hand of an ungodly and wicked man, it is not sinful for you to find your way out of that situation. Okay? That is ungodly and you should not be having to endure that. Now pray and hope by the grace of God that God could save that wicked man's heart, bring him to repentance over what he's done. Same thing though, as we go into the workforce and other relationships, is that we as often as is within biblical parameters are to be submitted to our authorities. But when it is to our destruction, or when it is unto sin, we say, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because we are submitted to our ultimate authority, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. God, I pray that your word would work in our hearts as an invitation to look at the perfect and beautiful model that Jesus set out for us in submission to different levels of authority in all of our lives. But beyond that also, Lord, that those of us who have authority would execute authority in fear and trembling before you, knowing that we will give an account to you for the way that we lead, for the way that we love, for the way that we serve our families, our employees and employers, the way that we serve our children, the way that we love and serve one another out of reverence for Christ. God, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would work that joyful, humble submission into our hearts today for the good of your people and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen.